Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I know there have been times in my life where I've struggled with sleeplessness, which is why I strive to help people everywhere with theirs. I'm proud to have partnered with a new sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, which doesn't take long at all. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counselling done securely online. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions in the comfort of your own home. You can also log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counsellor when you need. You'll have access to a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counsellor network which may not be locally available in many areas. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. Visit trybetterhelp.com forward slash bore you to sleep. That's trybetterhelp and join over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Special offer for Boy to Sleep listeners with 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com forward slash you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from A Japanese Nightingale Written by Anoto Watana and published in 1904 a young American finds himself at a tea house in Kyoto. Everyone knows that the tea house provides the best cultural performances, but he was not quite expecting the journey to follow. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. I am grateful that you have chosen this podcast to assist with your sleep. It's designed to play in the background while you slowly doze off. I love hearing from listeners of the show. Thanks to everyone who reached out or left a review during the week. Thank you to iTunes listeners Woman on Task and A Money Triple Three Triple Three for your lovely reviews. Aaron, for reaching out on Instagram, I'm extra delighted that you also heard about the podcast via recommendation. Thanks to Podbean listener, it's me, and also to at Rain Wetzel for the shout out on Twitter. Final thanks goes to William Scully for saying hello on the website and inquiring about merchandise. I'm not quite at that stage yet, William but will let you know as soon as I am. If you do find the podcast beneficial, 
there is a small but hugely helpful favor that you can provide. Please share the podcast with a friend and, if possible, kindly leave a review in your podcast app. There are a lot of people out there who are struggling with sleep, and my goal is to help as many people as possible get the sleep that they need. If you would like, you can also say hello at boreyoutosleep.com where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at boreyoutosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. A Japanese Nightingale Chapter 1 The Storm Dance The last rays of sunset were tinging the land, lingering in splendour above the bay. The waters had caught the golden glow, and Miser-like seemingly made effort to keep it with them. But inexorably, the lowering sun drew away its gilding light, leaving the waters a dark green. The shadows began to darken, Faint stars peeped out of the heavens, and slowly, unwillingly, the day's last ray followed the sunken sun to rest, and with its vanishment a pale moon stole overhead, and threw a seraphic light over all things. Out in the bay, the sun had left was a tiny island, and on this a Japanese businessman, who must also have been an artist, had built a tea house and laid out a garden. Such an island, in the sorcerous moonlight, one might easily believe it the witch work of an oriental merlin, running in every direction, were narrow Jinkrakesha roads, which crossed bewildering little creeks, spanned by entrancing bridges. These were round and high, and curved in the centre, and clinging vines and creeping, nameless flowers crawled up the sides and twined about the tiny steps, which ascended to the bridges. After crossing a bridge shaped thus, A straight bridge is forever an outrage to the eye and sense. And all along the beach of this island was pure white sand, which looked weirdly whiter where the moonbeams loitered and played hide-and-seek under the tree shadows. The seekers of pleasure who made their way out to the little island on this night moored their boats here in the shadows beneath the trees, and drove in fairy vehicles, pulled by picturesque runners, clear around the island, under the pine trees, over miniature brooks, into the mysterious dark of the forest. Suddenly they were ablaze of swinging, dazzling lights, laughter and music, Chatter, the clattering of dishes, the twang of samison, the ron-ton-ton of the biwa. They had reached the garden and the tea house. 
Some pleasure-loving Japanese were giving a banquet in honour of the full moon, and the moon just over their heads, clothed in glorious raiment, and sitting on a sky throne of luminous silver, was attending the banquet in person, surrounded by myriad twinkling stars, who played at being her courtiers. Each of the guests had his own little mat, table and waitress. They sat in a semicircle and drank the sake hot, in tiny cups that went thirty or more to the pint, or the Kyoto beer that had been ordered for the foreigners who were the chief guests this evening. This is the toast the Japanese made to the moon. May she with us drink a cup of immortality, and then each wished the one nearest him ten thousand years of joy. Now the moon path widened on the bay, and the moon itself expanded and grew more luminous as though in proud sympathy and understanding of the thousand banquets held in her honour this night. All the music and noise and clatter and revel had gradually ceased, and for a time an eloquent silence was everywhere. Huge glowing fireflies, flitting back and forth like tiny twinkling stars, seemed to be the only thing stirring. Someone snuffed the candles in the lanterns and threw a large mat in the centre of the garden and dusted it extravagantly with rice flour. Then a shaft of light that might have been the combination of a thousand moonbeams was flashed on the mat from an opening in the upper part of the house and out of the shadows sprang on the mat a wild, vivid little creature, clad in scantilating robes that reflected every ray of light thrown on them, and with her coming the air was filled with the weird, holy fascination music of the Koto and Samison. She pirouetted around on the tips of the toes of one little foot, clapped her hands and curtsied to the four corners of the earth. Her dance was one of the body rather than of the feet, as back and forth she swerved. There was a patter, patter, patter. Her garments seemed endowed with life, and took on a sorrowing appearance. The lights changed to accompany her. The music sobbed and quivered. It had begun to rain. She was raining. It seemed almost as if the pitter-patter of her feet were the falling of tiny raindrops. The sadness of her garments had increased and now they seemed to be weeping. At first, gradually, then faster and still faster, until finally she was a storm, 
a dark, blowing lightning storm. From above the light shot down in quick, sharp flashes. The drums clashed madly. The koto wept on, and the samison shrieked vindictively. Suddenly, the storm quieted down and ceased. A blue light flung itself against the now lightly swaying figure. Then the seven colours of the spectrum flashed on her at once. She spread her garments wide. They fluttered about her in a large half-circle. And underneath the rainbow of the gown, a girl's face of exquisite beauty smiled and drooped. Then the extinction of light, and she was gone. A common cry of admiration and wonder broke out from Japanese and foreigners alike. They called for her, clapped, stamped, whistled, cheered. One man's voice rose above the clatter of noises that had broken loose all over the gardens. He was demanding excitedly of the proprietor to tell him who she was. The proprietor, smirking and bowing and cringing, nevertheless would not tell. The American theatrical manager lost his head a moment. He could make that girl's fortune in America. He understood it was possible to purchase a geisha for a certain term of years. He stood ready on the spot to do this. He was ready to offer a good price for her. Who was she, and where did she live? Meanwhile, the nerve-scraping zin, zin, zin of a samison was disturbing the air with teasing persistence. There is something provoking and still alluring in the music of the samison. It startles the chills in the blood like the maddening scraping of a piece of metal against stone. And still there is an indescribable fascination and beauty about it. Now as it scratched and squealed intermittently and gradually twittered down to a zoom, 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 a voice rose softly, gently, insinuatingly it entered into the music of the samison only one long note had broken loose which neither trembled nor wavered when it had ended none could say only that it had passed into other notes as strangely beautiful and a girl was singing Again the light flashed down and showed her standing on the same mat on which she had danced. Her hands clasped, her face raised. She was ethereal, divinely so. Her kimono was all white, save where the shaft of moonbeams touched the silk to silvery brilliance. And her voice. All the notes were minors, piercing, sweet, melancholy, terribly beautiful. 
She was singing music unheard in any land save the Orient, and now for the first time, perhaps, appreciated by the foreigners, and because of that voice, a voice meant just for such a medley of melody, and when she had ceased, the last note had not died out, did not fall, but remained raised, unfinished, giving to the occidental ears a sense of incompleteness. Her audience leaned forward, peering into the darkness, waiting for the end. The American theatrical manager stalked towards the light, which lingered a moment and died out, as if by magic as he reached it. But the girl was gone. By Jove, she's great, he cried out enthusiastically. Then he turned on the proprietor. Where is she? Where can I find her? The man shook his head. Oh, come now, the American demanded impatiently. I'll pay you. I don't know. She is gone but you know where she lives. The proprietor again answered in the negative. Now wouldn't that make one of his country's squatty little gods groan? The exasperated manager demanded of a younger man who had followed him forward. She'd be a great card in vaudeville, the young man contented himself with saying. There's a fortune in her. I'm going to find her if she's on this island. Come on with me, will you? Nothing loath, Jack Biglow fared forth behind the theatrical man, whom he had never seen before that afternoon, and whom he had never expected to see again. They hurried down one more of the narrow, shadowy roads that almost made a labyrinth of the islands. But fortune was with them. A turn in the road, which showed the waters of the bay not fifty yards ahead, revealed just in front of them two figures, two women, both small, but one a trifle taller than her companion. Hi there, you, shouted the manager, who, though among a people whose civilization was older than his own, considered them but heathen, and gave them the scant courtesy deserved by all so benighted in matters theatrical. The two figures suddenly stopped. Are you the girl who sang? Yes, came the answer in a clear voice, from the taller figure. The manager was not slow in coming to the point. Would you like to be rich? Again, the positive, monosyllable, uttered with such eagerness. Good, the manager's face could not be seen, but his satisfaction was revealed in his voice. Just come with me to America and your fortune is made. She stood silent, her head down, so that the manager prompted her impatiently. Well, 
I stay at Japan, she said. Stay at Japan. The manager barely controlled himself. Why you can never get rich in this land. Now look here. I'll call you and see you tomorrow. Where do you live? I don't want you call. I stay at Japan. This time the manager, seeing a possible fortune escaping him, and having in mind the courtesy due to the heathen, delivered himself of a large Christian oath. If you stay here, you're a fool. You will never. The young man named Biglow, who had watched the attempted bargaining in silence, broke in with some indignation. Oh, let her go. She's got a right to do as she pleases, you know. Don't try to bully her in going to America, if she'd rather stay here. Well, I suppose I can't use force to make her take a good thing, said the manager, ungraciously. He drew out his card case and handed the girl his card. Perhaps you'll change your mind after you think about this for a bit. If you do, my name and Tokyo address are on that card. Just come round and see me. I'm going down to Bombay to look out for some Indian jugglers. I'll be gone about five months, and will be back in Tokyo before I start out on another trip to China, Korea, and the Philippines, and then off for home. The girl took the card and listened in silence. When he finished, she curtsied, slipped a hand into that of her companion, and hurried down the narrow road. After the two Americans had made their way back to the tea garden, the older one at once sought out the proprietor. You know something about that girl. Come tell us, he said imperiously. The proprietor was profusely courteous, but hesitated to speak of the one who had danced and sung. Finally, he unbent grudgingly. He told the theatrical man and his companion that he knew next to nothing about her. She had come to him a stranger and had offered her services. She refused to enter into the usual contract demanded of most geishas and in view of her talents, he could not afford to lose her. She was attracting large crowds to his gardens by her strange dances. Still, he disliked and mistrusted her. She came only when it suited her whim, and on fates and occasions of this kind, he had no means of knowing where she was. It was only by accident she had happened in this evening. Once he had attempted to follow her, but she had discovered him, and made him promise never to do such a thing again, threatening to stay away altogether if he did so. He spoke disparagingly of her. Beautiful excellencies, foul, 
You cannot see properly in the deceitful light of this honourable moon. A cheap girl of Tokyo, with the blue glass eyes of the barbarian, the yellow skin of the lower Japanese, the hair of mixed colour, black and red, the form of Japanese courtesan, and the heart of nature of those honourably reliable creatures, alien at this country, alien at your honourable country, augustly despicable, a half-caste. Jack Biglow was beset by the Nakodas, professional matchmakers, he was known to be one of the richest foreigners in the city, and the Nakodas gave him no rest. Though he found them interesting, with the little comedies and tragedies to relate of the matches they had made and unmade, he had remained impregnable to their arts. He naturally shrank from such a union, and in this position he was strengthened by a promise he had made before leaving America to a college chum, his most intimate friend, a young English-Japanese student named Taro Burton, that during his stay in Japan he would not append his name to the long list of foreigners who for a short, happy and convenient season cheerfully take unto themselves Japanese wives, and with the same cheerfulness desert them. Taro Burton was almost a monomaniac on this subject, and denounced both the foreigners who took to themselves and deserted Japanese wives, and the native Japanese who made such a practice possible. He himself was a half-caste, being the product of a marriage between an Englishman and a Japanese woman. In this case, however, the husband was proved faithful to his wife and children up to the death, but then he had married a daughter of the nobility, a descendant of the proud Jokichi family, and the ceremony had been performed by an English missionary. Despite the happiness of the marriage, Taro held that the Eurasian was born to a sorrowful lot, and was bitterly opposed to the union of the woman of this country with men of other lands, particularly as he was westernised enough to appreciate how lightly such marriages were held by the foreigners. It was true, of course, that after the desertion the wife was divorced, according to the law, but that in Taro's mind only made the matter more detestable. For five years up to their graduation four months before this, the young American and the half-Japanese had been associated as closely together as it is possible for two young men to be, and a strong and deep affection existed between them. It had been originally decided that the friends would make this trip together, 
which in Taro Burton's case was to be his return to the home he had left, and with Jack Biglow was to be the beginning of a year's travel, preliminary to entering the business of his father, who was a rich shipbuilder, but for some reason, which he never clearly set forth to his friend, Taro had backed out at almost the last minute, yet he had urged Jack to undertake the trip alone, and under promise to follow shortly, finally had prevailed. So Jack Biglow had made the long voyage to Japan, and had taken a pretty house of his own, a short distance from Tokyo. It was unfortunate that Taro could not have accompanied his friend, for while the latter was not a weak character, he was easygoing, good-natured, and easily manipulated through his feelings. The young Japanese, had he done nothing else, at least would have kept the Nakodas and their offerings of matrimonial happiness on the other side of the American doors. As it was, one of them in particular was so picturesque in appearance, quaint in speech, and persistent in his calls that the young man had encouraged his visits until a certain jocular intimacy put their relations with each other on a pleasant and familiar footing. It was this Nakoda, Ido was his name, who brought an applicant for a husband to his house, one day and besought him at least to hold a look at meeting with her. She is beautiful, like unto the sun goddess, he declared, with the extravagance of his class. The last was like the moon, said the young man, laughing. Have you any stars to trot out? Stars, echoed the other, for a moment puzzled, and then beaming with delightment, ah yes, her eyes, her feet, hair, hands twinkling like unto them same stars. She prays for just a look at meeting with your excellency. Well, for the fun of the thing then, said the other laughing, I'm sure I don't mind having a look at meeting with some pretty girl. Show her into the sashishi, which is the guest room, and I'll be along in the moment. But look here, he continued, you had better understand that I'm only going through the ceremony for the fun of the thing, mind you. I don't intend on marrying anyone at all, not a girl of that class. Nod for a little while which even persuaded the Nakoda. Not for a little while which even echoed the young man, but the agent had disappeared. When Jack, curious to know what she was like, she who was seeking him for a husband, entered the Zasishi, he found the blinds high up and the sunshine pouring into the room. 
His eyes fell upon her at once, for the shoji at the back of the room was parted, and she stood in the opening, her head drooping bewitchingly. He could not see her face. She was quite small, though not so small as the average Japanese woman, and the two little hands clasped before her were the whitest, most irrestible, and perfect hands he had ever seen. He had heard of the beauty of the hands of the Japanese women, and was not surprised to find even a girl of this class. She was a geisha, of course. He told himself with such exquisite, delicate hands. He knew she was holding them so that they could be seen to advantage, and her little affected pose amused and pleased him. After he had looked at her a moment, she subsided to the mats and made her prostration. She was dressed very gaily in a red crepe kimono, tied about with a purple obi. Her hair was dressed after the fashion of the geisha, with a flower ornament at top and long, pointed daggers at either side. But as she bowed her head to the mats, some pin in her hair escaped and slipped, and then a tawny, rebellious mass of hair, which was never meant to be worn smoothly, had fallen out about her, tumbled into her eyes and over her ears, and literally covered her little crouching form. She shivered in shame at the mishap, and then knelt very still at his feet. Big Lau was speechless. Never before in his life had he seen such hair. It was black, though not densely so, for all over it, Even where it had been darkened with oil, there was a rich red tinge, and it was luxuriously thick and long and wavy. Good heavens, he said, after the little figure had remained absolutely motionless for a full minute. She'll hurt or cramp herself in that position. The girl did not rise at the sound of his voice, but crept nearer to him her hair still enshrouding her. It made him feel creepy and annoyed and pleased and amused him altogether. Don't do that, he said. Please stand up. Please do. The Nakoda told him to lift her two feet, and the young man did so, entangling his hands in her hair. When she stood up, He saw her face, which was oval and rosy, the lips very red. She still drooped her eyes so that her face was incomplete. What's your name? He asked her gently. And what do you want with me? Now she raised her head and he saw her eyes. They startled him. They were large, though narrow, and intensely, vividly blue. Before, with her hair neatly smoothed and dressed, he had noticed nothing extraordinary about her, 
now with that rich red-black hair enshrouding her, and the long blue eyes marvelling at him mistily. She was an eerie little creature that made him marvel. A Japanese girl with such hair and eyes, and yet the more he looked at her, the more he saw that her clothes became her, that she was Japanese despite the hair and eyes. He did not try to explain the anomaly to himself, but he could not doubt her nationality. There was no other country she could belong to. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you enjoyed listening to this book, and I hope you're feeling a little drowsy. If you're not quite sleepy yet, please feel free to listen to another episode. I'll be working on bringing you another episode very soon. Until then, good night.